Hello and welcome to Creating Discomfort. This podcast comes to you from the Hinterian University of Glasgow. I am Zandra Yeaman, Creator of Discomfort. On today's episode, Mary and Andrew discuss an Asante gold dust box. Hello, my name is Mary Osteopong. I am a Creating Discomfort team member in the Ontarian Museum. I am a qualified teacher of business education, computing science, RE, also chartered teacher. And I taught for 22 years in Scotland secondary schools. Also, I have integrated well in Scottish society and as a community activist. I wrote a book in 2020 and straight after the launch, maybe a couple of weeks later, EIS, the Educational Institute of Scotland, they featured it in the Scottish Educational Journal. And soon after that, European Trade Union Committee for Education, they also use it to promote their teacher inclusion campaign. So, so far, it's doing well. My book is called For the Love of Teaching, the Anti-Racist Battlefield in Education. Hi, my name is Andy Mills. I'm the curator for archaeology and world cultures at the Hunterian. I've been here for two and a half years now. So I'm responsible for the entire World Cultures collection. So I look after all of the art from Africa, from Asia, from the Pacific, and also from North and South America as well. So the object that uh, we've selected to talk about today is a gold dust box made by an Ashanti brasmith from Ghana in West Africa. So this beautiful object came into the museum in 1931. It was bequeathed to us by a Mrs. F.A. Stewart. We don't know anything else at all about how Mrs. Stewart acquired the box or how it came to her in Liverpool. So it's it's a classic example of, of what we often have with World Cultures collections in museums where... We know who we got the object from, but we don't know how they got it at all or how it ended up in Britain. So as you can see, it's made from brass. It's been cast. So Ashante brass work is mostly achieved through a lost wax casting process. So the object itself is originally sculpted in usually wood and then overmodeled with wax into the final shape and then clay is impressed to make a mould from the wax shape, which when the clay mould is then fired, the wax disappears, drops out of the mould, and then brass can be cast in the clay mould that's left behind. So this is how it's made. We don't really know how old it is. We think the brass casting started in the Ashanti Kingdom about 1400 AD, and ran all the way through to today, runs through to today. So we know that this was collected probably in the late 19th century or the very early 20th century, but we have absolutely no idea how old it is. 
and it's particularly difficult to date brass objects obviously because you can't do radiocarbon dating or any of those scientific techniques that you would normally expect to use if you're an archaeologist so it's it's very very difficult to say how old it is it could be 600 years old it could be 150 years old when i saw the ashanti gold dust box on ontarian museum collection the following came to mind countries because then countries in west africa were named according to what was traded most and as it happened ghana at that time gold was in abundance and now still is there so then the british named ghana gold coast the gold dust box as andy said normally the finish is in a glass color but a lot of work goes into that and it was first cast by the ashanti empire as andy mentioned and also had a senior feature with significant meaning. For example, like two hairs are better than one, or bears of the same feather flock together, things like that. And it just the proverb, the Ashanti proverb. Gold dust means gold in the Akan language is called Sika. And dust is futro. So gold dust is Sikafutro. And it was the currency of the Ashanti Empire. It was not only a means of wealth and a way of displaying status, but also a spiritual substance. Because like the Ashantis, and so the wealthy people do. That's where maybe I think the people was the same, right? Digging the grave and taking whatever they wanted because those days, so many, many years ago, maybe in the 16th century, 15th, when people died, they buried them with gold. That showed their wealth and the status of the person. And now, wealthy people, maybe not the gold dust, but something of gold made from gold will be buried with the person. So that is the significance. It's not just the currency aspect of it, but also what it means to people of Ashanti or maybe Ghana as a whole. To make sure that the Ashanti kingdom benefits from the natural resources, there was a war known as the Ashanti War, and for the British to gain total control, when the king, the Ashanti king, that was Prempe the first, was sleeping during the night, they captured him and all his household, and they exiled them. And three years later, I think that happened in 1893. And 1896, they exiled them to Seychelles. And after three years later, they brought the king back, Prempe the first, but without his household, just him alone. When he came, then the British government, they have built a big palace for him. 
but he vowed that he would never step foot to the palace to live there until he has paid every penny of it. And that's what happened. And after paying all the money that was used to build the house, then he went and lived in. So this is something that maybe as I'm, by the way, <laughs> I'm from Ashanti. I'm Ashanti person. So I'm part of all this that I'm saying to you. And you can say that he became a victim of the forced colonialization of territories in Africa because a lot of things happen. And it's all down to what Africa they have and Europeans want to grab everything for themselves. So now, even when you go to the Ashanti capital, Menshia, the story of the King Krempe being exiled is told there if you visit there. And I repeat, he was exiled to Seychelles. And so some of the household, I suppose, they died, but their offspring, they are all there, and they have the name Krempe. And nowadays, we see gold dust box without the gold dust. And I always ask, where is the gold dust and who owns the gold dust or who owns it? So that's a long story. And I felt that I have to also tell a story of the war, why that happened. Yeah, so when the British seized the Ashanti kingdom, one of the first things that they did was to introduce paper money and coinage into the Gold Coast colony and the Ashanti colony and the other colonies in that part of West Africa. And by doing that, they short-circuited the local economy. So they were able then to start extracting gold in enormous quantities. And so all of the paraphernalia, technology and art that was created in that part of West Africa around storing gold dust and around trading gold dust became superfluous because the British had replaced it with this imported system of currency. So like lots of other museums in the UK, we have, as well as these beautiful gold dust boxes, we also have scales for weighing gold dust, we have scoops for measuring out gold dust, and we have a very large collection of Ashanti gold weights, which are some of the most beautiful artworks that were ever produced mm -hmm. in West Africa. Mm -hmm. And every single one of them is different. And as, as Mary says, they all have rich proverbial meanings in them and they're beautiful miniature little works of art, every single one of them. And after the British had destroyed the traditional economic system in the Ashanti Kingdom, then the main value to people of those objects became selling them for paper money and coinage. So an awful lot of white settlers in the Gold Coast colony and in the Ashanti colony and the other colonies in West Africa bought them when they were living there, when they were working in the British colonial service and that kind of thing. And so that's how a lot of those objects ended up coming back to the UK and then ending up in museum collections like ours.
believe, just like Andy said earlier on, when you enter the museum, there is no labeling indicating the significance and the symbolic nature of the country of origin or the source country and what actually it means to the people of that country. It's just a list who donated the item or specimen and the person, the name, and at times where it came from is a bit vague. So I believe that for the labeling system needs to change. We have to look at it and see how best we can take it forward. And even to, I believe we have discussed this also to allow visitors, tourists who come in to maybe let them have a room to write something down or tell a story if, it's, if we can record it or whatever. Because it means something, for example, as a, a Ghanaian and Ashanti, and I'm somebody quite interested. I know I've lived in the UK for 40 years, more than Ghana, but I'm so invested in my history. So as soon as I enter, you showed me the box, for example, with the miniature of the King's tool, Queen's tool, and the rest of it. It wasn't even arranged properly. It wasn't in a structure where I would say it's respected. So if somebody can stand, see the gold dust box, just sitting at a corner somewhere, to me, we are showing disrespect to the item and also people's feelings. So if we can label it, that people come in, they see and they can connect, relate to the item, I think is to be beneficial to yeah, I completely agree. I, I think that one of the biggest problems with museums is the way that we present information in terms of one single explanation for what an object on display might mean. And often we're very ignorant, you know, about the nature of objects, their cultural significance, like Mary says, their proverbial meanings, you know. Those things, they often haven't been written down, or if they are written down, they're not written down in English. Mm -hmm. And therefore, very often people who work in museums aren't aware of those uh, sources of information. So the only way that we can really start to create meaningful interpretations, as we call them, of museum objects, is to try and draw in as many different perspectives and voices as we can. And that's the only way that we can overcome that kind of inadvertent feeling that we can create in some visitors that their cultural heritage is being disrespected because that's never the intention but if you're ignorant about the meaning and the significance of something then it's inevitable that you're going to offend people i think that is the for me the labeling system is very very important and also like the museum understanding the collection they keep the significance of it and also like every country even in britain we have a system of kinship if you like queens and a structure 
So maybe they should think in terms of that structure, if whatever is there, if they don't know, ask people, maybe what we have here, how can we display it? That is also part of it. That people come in and see, for example, if a king's chanting king's stool is sitting at the bottom of the pile, that is an insult. So just learning. We are all learning. We are all, it's a learning process that every little bit helps. I think my hope is for all of us to learn together to bring about a change for better, for the next generation to continue without fear or favor. Yeah, I, I think what I really want to do is, is try and make these changed understandings about the collections that we have from Ghana visible in the documentation that we have about the objects, in the exhibitions that we do, in the displays that we put on, and all of those things, so that there is enduring and meaningful change. For me, it has been beneficial because one, I'm learning, and also I'm getting to know how they keep the collection before then, I didn't, I, maybe I guess that there will be a database somewhere. And also, I remember the last event that Afford posted. Then we talk about human remains and the repatriation of it and what have you. For me, I learned a lot. Because if you are not involved in museum work, is something that is at the back of your mind. But for me, that process kind of invoked what I knew from my childhood and the feeling that maybe I had buried for a long time also came to surface and made me also think about my ancestors and also people who are living now, because like when I was growing up, we talk about these things, our elders talk about these things, narrated all the stories to us. But sometimes you doubt it, is it true, is it not? So for me, uh -huh, that kind of concern, for example, my grandmother told me all the stories. He told me, my mother, my father. So. I have learned a lot and also it's kind of, I don't even know how to put it. It's, I have respected my history. I respected it then, but I respect it now more than ever before because it has taught me that my ancestors went through a lot. But without vengeance and also with hard work, they kind of, rose and did whatever they needed to do to survive so everything that they knew and when i think about it sometimes though i feel sorry for my ancestors for what they've been through because it has kind of it has affected everybody including myself 
but then you just live and also it has given me the edge to continue with this and help in any way to make things better for the country, the source country being Ghana or wherever that might be, and also for Hunterian Museum or any other museum. Yeah, I totally agree with what Mary says. I think it's the experience for me has really been about, as Mary says, it's really about history and understanding our history. And I think that, you know, I've, I've traveled to lots of different places in the world and talked to a lot of people from countries that used to be British colonies. And very often the experience that I've, I've had is of, of people believing that the British will know the history of what their ancestors, the British people did in those countries and and we don't and we aren't taught it in school and we should be but I think there's a shame there for a lot of British people and I think there's denial and, and that they don't want to know what the British were doing all around the world 150 years ago and 100 years ago and so this for me has been very much about learning you know a part of that history and of the impact of the British people in, in what became Ghana later. And that's been very powerful. Thank you for listening to the Creating Discomfort podcast. This episode was brought to you by the Hunterian at University of Glasgow. Production, sound and editing were done by Caris Sanderson, Holly Wade and Eva Lopez Lopez.